hey, do you like winning stuff? Do you like winning Motley Fool stuff? Well, head on over to Instagram and visit our account. It's at the Motley Fool Official. And look for a photo of Foolish Swag. To enter, you have to answer the question correctly and tag a friend in the comments of the post. And if you win, your friends win too. What could you win? Well, you could win a Foolish Baseball cap, t-shirts, or even a copy of the Motley Fool Investment Guide signed by Tom and David Gardner. So, head on over to Instagram and visit us at The Motley Fool Official and look for the photo of the Foolish Swag to enter. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, bro. Hello. We just had a guest greet us when we came into this studio. It was such a nice surprise. So, uh, so let's say hi to Daniel from Dubai, who I guess is probably now back in Dubai, but he came to visit us, and so that was such a nice surprise. With a postcard. A postcard and presents from Dubai. Daniel, thank you. Yes. That's very nice. Um... Why are we here? Oh, yes, that's right. In this week's episode, (laughs) Bro explores the lousy world of 403Bs and what you can do about it if you're stuck with one. And I'm going to share some lessons from the WeWork IPO that wasn't. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison? What's up? Well, I'll tell you what's not up, and that's WeWork's valuation. Zing! <laughs> hey! Ah, uh, so in January, WeWork was valued at $47 billion, and they were planning to go public. But as they started disclosing the financials as part of the IPO process, investors disagreed that the company was worth nearly as much. Okay, the company said, we'll make some changes and come back at $20 billion. No? Still not interested? No one? Nuts. $10 billion? No. So, they hit pause on going public, and then the CEO was ousted, and wowie, what a ride. So, today I'm going to share with you some lessons from the WeWork dumpster fire of an IPO. So, for those of you who aren't sure about what WeWork does, um, and by the way, it's actually the We company, but their main bread and butter is WeWork locations, so I'm just probably going to end up saying WeWork most of the time. I agree with that. Thank you. All right. So, WeWork essentially takes on long-term leases for office space, renovates the space so it looks really cool, and then short-term subleases it as a co-working space. So, if you're an entrepreneur just getting started, it's a nice way to get all the amenities of an office without having to worry about setting it up yourself. Its success has largely been credited to the booming startup economy. However, bigger companies are also using them. So, we actually have um, use a WeWork space in Philly. So, it's been a great opportunity for us where we want to explore. Do we want to open up a permanent office here? Uh, Maybe. How about we just start with a WeWork space? Let's just dip our toes. Right? So, companies like Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon also use them to rent space in cities where they don't want to manage the real estate themselves. In the D.C. area alone, just in D.C., Northern Virginia, do you want to guess how many WeWork spaces we have? I actually don't. I mean, the company has. For, we don't for have people, them. Yeah, for people who don't know, that's where we all live. Yeah. So, uh, but I can't say I've ever seen one. So they they must be hidden. Are they hidden? No, they're not hidden. There are twelve locations in the within like let's say five miles of us at this okay. exact moment, and six opening up soon. Oh boy! Apparently, they open two no, new locations a day, and the, their growth has made them the largest private tenant of Manhattan office space. Wow. That's bananas. Bananas. So over at the WeWork on Rhode Island Avenue in DC, for an example, it costs about $400 a month to just hang out. And then you can go and you can sit in the in the common spaces, find a table, find a desk, use their phone booth, whatever. For a thousand bucks, you can have your private office where you can stand in one place and probably touch all four walls. <laughs> The We Company also has other ventures like We Live, which are condo, which is like a condo building in DC, and We Grow, which is a school. But again, WeWork is the big one. Okay, so that's what they do. What the heck happened? And what can we learn? First lesson: beware the celebrity CEO. Oh boy. To paraphrase Aswat Damodaran, I don't like this company. I don't like CEOs that spend their time telling me how to live my ra- life rather than talking about running their own business. Right. By the way, he's a business professor at NYU. And, and yeah, he did a YouTube video that's like at least a half hour long looking at WeWork and are they really worth what they think they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you love numbers and valuation, I recommend watching that YouTube video. His website is great. All kinds of great data, all kinds of good stuff. So, to be fair, you can be a so-called CEO, celebrity CEO, and run a profitable company. We love a good founder-led company here at The Motley Fool. Emphasis on the word good. So, this man, though, he is a hoot, and the media is excited to pile on. Alrighty. Meet 
CEO and co-founder Adam Newman. I believe he's six foot five. He's got long locks of hair, kind of like a skinny, or um, who's that? Antonio Banderas, maybe. I think more like uh, Michael Hutchins, former lead singer of NXS. I okay, think that he looks a lot like him. Okay, okay. For you um, fans of eighty bands, eighties bands. I mean, NXS is so good. Oh my gosh, yeah. so good, right? Yep. That music holds up. Indeed. Uh, okay. So there you now you got a picture of him in your mind. The Wall Street <laughs> Journal described him as intensely ambitious and a masterful storyteller with a magnetic personality who can inspire and sell. And New York Magazine has a delightful article about the man, and it's full of fun anecdotes, such as how he holds meetings at two in the morning and still shows up late. He gets stranded in foreign countries after someone stashes weed in a cereal box on the private jet. Um, oh, and the company. This company loves to party. But I'm honestly not bothered by the fact that he smokes weed on private jets or that he doesn't wear shoes around the office. He can smoke all the barefoot weed he wants if he can run a good company. And he certainly inspired a lot of people. So we'll get into the economics of the business later. But Adam and his wife, who's been very involved in the company and by his side the whole time, and their big personalities, it's a cult of personality, some say, are what helped inspire people and grow the company, but it also derailed the IPO. Um, oh, and also financial shenanigans. So oh, The shenanigans are crazy. The shenanigans are crazy. Yeah. So the fun thing about going public is suddenly you have to disclose a lot of financial information. And WeWork had a few skeletons in their closet that made investors say, no thanks. So, for example, <laughs> this is so good. WeWork paid Newman nearly $6 million to change the name to The Wee Company, a trademark that Newman just so happened to own. <laughs> I think that kind of summarizes the whole like, problem with his self-dealing. It's amazing. It's self deal yes, absolutely. And so when investors called them out on this in the S1, it's just there in the S1, they amended the S1 and said he gave the money back. But how how gutsy is that to be like, you know what we need to do? We need to change the name of the company. And I it just so happens I have a great name. <laughs> And now you're gonna have to pay me for that name. Like what? Okay. Anyway, let's move on because that's just like shenanigans number one. Apparently, Newman invested in buildings and then had WeWork sublease space in them, which obviously presents a conflict of interest. On top of the, on top of that, Bloomberg said that the S two filing showed that he was also borrowing money from WeWork with little at little or no interest. So he was borrowing money from the same company that he was also charging to rent space from him. How much money? Well, in 2016, Newman borrowed seven million from WeWork at the interest rate annual interest rate of 0.64%. Nice, so nice. I want that deal. <laughs> also, Newman took out a much larger loan from WeWork a few months ago. The company lent him 362 million dollars in April at 2.89% interest to help him exercise some options to buy stock. Mm, interesting. I know. He also reportedly cashed out of $700 million in stock ahead of the IPO, uh, with the S2 saying that his last sale was late 2017. So, why was the guy able to do all this stuff, all this self-dealing? Well, aside from being charming and motivating, he also has controlling shares. He has been able to maintain control because the share class he owns has 20 votes to every one vote that regular other shareholders get. Mm. So, when people saw this at the S2, they were or S1, I keep saying S2. I mean to say S1, don't I? Sure. Every well, time but I say most S2. people don't know the difference. So, go ahead. Say S10. It's just, it's all fine. It's all good. Although, I don't know. Okay, I don't know which S I'm in, but like <laughs> S in the S's. There's some numbers here. All right. So, we were amended the S1 and they reduced the voting share, the voting power to ten votes for every one regular shares voting power, but that's still pretty like ridiculous, yeah. right? All right. So as I'm researching this and reading all the articles and listening to all those podcasts, it's easy to forget that there's actually another co-founder named Miguel McKelvey, who later became the company's chief creative officer in charge of design. Um, arguably, the design of these spaces is WeWork's biggest edge. So, anyway, it's hard to find a lot about him, but he did um, an interview on the How I Built This podcast, and he sounds like a legit nice person. <laughs> and so, I recommend listening to this podcast. Um, the again, it's How I Built This podcast with Miguel McKelvey, um, because the 
the interview takes place when the company is doing well, like it's a couple years ago. And so the narrative at the time is, oh, wow, look at these audacious guys who had an idea and the passion to go after it. And they did make a lot of money. I mean, their revenue is like something like $2 billion. Yeah, they, yeah. they did do well. Um, whereas, of course, the narrative now is look at these clueless, hubristic hucksters. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's. It's just funny how the media will turn on you, right? Because you know what people love more than an underdog story is, of course, an underdog story that turns into a fall from grace story, right. which is what this has been. Right. You know, it's just been the evolution here. But it is, it is because of, of number one, the valuation that they tried to come out with the IPO, and number two, the CEO. If you took those two away, it actually would be a pretty straightforward success story. Sorry, that's my hot take. Didn't want to interrupt. That's not you. a hot take. No, that's no. I think I think I think you're right. Um, all right, let's head to lesson number two. Are you really a tech company? <laughs> this is a good one too. So real estate is an old business. It can certainly be profitable, but is real estate inve- uh, investing really going to excite VC investors? What if I tell you if it's a tech company that's disrupting real estate? Ooh, I see you. Now you're on board. <laughs> and that's what WeWork promised. They weren't just going to disrupt real estate, though. They were going to be a tech company that was going to disrupt education and housing and gyms. But the thing is, they aren't a tech company, really. They're a real estate company. But wait, what if I tell you that we are a community company committed to maximum global impact, as WeWork said in a regulatory filing, and our mission is to elevate the world's consciousness? <laughs> eh? <laughs> Who's on board? I'll, I'll pay okay, $40 Rick billion is literally wearing a shirt right now that says, Elevate Humanity Through Business. There we go. So Rick is on board. Wow, you totally are on board. <laughs> it was a giveaway at the conscious capitalism meeting. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. That, that was, that's probably where they stole the statement from. <laughs> so that you, okay, I, I shouldn't make so much fun of them because you know what? It is nice when businesses want to make the world around them a better place. Okay, I'll give you that. Um, Come on, you're renting office space, and it's really great looking office space. How fun, how exciting, how collaborative. But okay, maybe slow your roll there on elevating the world's consciousness. All right, well, let's take actually, let's take a look at the numbers. Um, I mean, the headline could be that they are losing two dollars for every one dollar in revenue. That's a fun stat. So last year, WeWork reported revenue of one point eight two billion, more than double that of the prior year. Awesome. Nice. But nice. its net loss also nearly doubled to one point six billion. Less nice. Less nice. Less nice, as TechCrunch put it. WeWork is growing like mad, but it's hard to tell what its gross margins are. This makes its revenue quality hard to parse. What wasn't hard to figure out was that WeWork is tectonically unprofitable on operating in net basis, and that the company's operations consume cash, while its investing activities torch the stuff. (laughs) Which, okay, fine, startups tend to burn through a lot of money to grow into profitability. But this is a business with questionable, at best, margins, so the revenue is growing great, but it'll potentially never outpace the losses. But oh wait! WeWork also has a lot of debt, including a 702 million bond that's due in 2025. Mm. And speaking of those investments that are torching money, Newman, apparently an avid surfer, of course, course. made the company invest 13 million in a wave pool company. You know, it's like that's just kind of like a small throwaway anecdote. Anyway, as Scott Galloway said on the Recode podcast, pivot. Uber was drunk and disruptive. WeWork was just drunk. <laughs> Who went fun to these people? Well, that gets us to our final lesson. Be careful when SoftBake says you're not crazy enough, even though we've already established that you're already pretty crazy. So, meet Masayoshi-san, chairman of and CEO of SoftBank Group Corp., a Japanese conglomerate. In 2016, SoftBank launched the Vision Fund, a $100 billion venture fund. Massive! Massive, forty-five billion of which came from Saudi Arabia. The Vision Fund strategy, if I'm obviously oversimplifying it here, because these are very sophisticated investors, um, but generally their strategy was to take a ton of money, sink it into relatively late-stage companies like DoorDash, um, Slack, Uber, etc., and blitz-scale them, and then step three, profit. So Masayoshi-san or Masasan. Um, apparently, some people call him that. Maybe of his course. friends. Of course. We're pretty tight. Uh, he admits that what he looks for are insatiable entrepreneurs. 
At WeWork, as they said in the FT Beyond Money podcast, Massasun met his match with the ultimate hustler. So here's how the deal went down. From the New York Magazine piece, Sun met Newman at the WeWork headquarters and told him he had precisely 12 minutes for a tour, after which he invited Newman to join him in his car, where Sun sketched out a deal on his iPad to invest $4.4 billion in WeWork. Sun told him to make WeWork 10 times bigger than your original plan and to recognize that in a fight, being crazy is better than being smart, and that WeWork wasn't being crazy enough. And Sun thought that WeWork could be worth a few hundred billion dollars. Hmm. Apparently, Masa-sun thought that WeWork was like Amazon at the stage when Amazon only sold books. And somehow WeWork was going to sell everything community-related? Anyway, at this point in my homework, I didn't have time to unravel how and when SoftBank um, and, separately, SoftBank's Vision Fund kind of doubled down on their WeWork investment. But now, SoftBank and the Vision Fund own nearly one-third of We. Um, they made moves at a $47 billion valuation. They made invested at a $20 billion valuation. And then they are about to become majority shareholders when, in December, Masayoshi Sun tells Newman that the plan for SoftBank to invest $16 billion in WeWork, including $4 billion, it had already promised while the deal was dead. So WeWork, Uber, Slack, DoorDash, we're all supposed to go public and make tons of money for the Vision Fund in time for SoftBank to start convincing investors to pour money into their second Vision Fund of over $100 billion, which is right about now. So Uber and Slack, well, we know how they're doing. And there's some schadenfreude to be had in the VC world, I think, about how SoftBank's Vision Fund is performing. If SoftBank had given them more money, that would have probably bought WeWork more time, given them a little bit more runway. But WeWork is running out of runway to get profitable, thus the pressure to IPO. And here we are today. So, what happens now? Well, Adam Newman stepped down as CEO, uh, and there are rumors that WeWork is going to lay off a third of their employees. Mm. At least they're looking into it. Um, from what I read, experts think that co-working is only going to become more popular. And that the threat for WeWork, though, is that there's a big difference between the average length of the leases it enters into, roughly 15 years in the US, and the time its customers typically agrees to lease the space, which is like less than two years. So, should the economy go south, the hit to entrepreneurs and small businesses, and ultimately to WeWork, could be pretty hard. The short term subleases would dry up. Meanwhile, they're still obligated to pay their long term leases. So, like I said, I listened to a lot of podcasts um, and read a lot of articles. I recommend reading the New York Magazine article. The Wall Street Journal's also done a lot of good reporting on this if you want to learn more. Um, I also enjoyed listening to the Financial Times Behind the Money podcast episode about this, and then Recode's Pivot podcast was fun um, with Scott Galloway, but there are a lot of swear words in that one, so don't listen to it with your kids. Anyway, a few weeks ago, before everything fell apart, on a call with the whole company, Newman said they had, quote, played the private market game to perfection. As for the public markets, he said the company was still learning the rules of the game. Wow. And that, bro, is what's up. I need perfection. Some twisted selection. When most people think of work-sponsored retirement plans, they think of the 401k. But one in five American workers is actually covered by a different type of plan that also has a really boring name, and that is the 403b. It's the type of plan that is offered by nonprofits, many government entities, and while it has much in common with the 401k, there are some important differences. The biggest of which is that many 403b plans are lousy. Yes, some 401k plans also stink, but when I think of some of the worst retirement plans that I have personally seen or read about, most of them have been 403bs. So, what makes them so bad, and why is this even allowed to happen? Here to provide the sorted details and solid recommendations are Dan Otter and Scott Donhauer, the fellows behind 403bwise.org and the Teach and Retire Rich podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be on. So, Dan, you and I have known each other uh, for several years, and you actually have an old history with the Motley Fool yes. going back like. I think like early 2000s when we did online seminars, you were actually one of the board strollers. Absolutely. I was an early big fan, and I credit if we have any humor at all on our website, it's because of The Motley Fool. The idea that you could talk about finances and make it fun, 
I found that enormously appealing, and we tried to integrate that into what we do. Back when we first met, I think you were a sixth grade teacher in Maryland, English teacher. Yeah. I used to be a sixth grade English teacher, so we hit it off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you went from there to where you are now, including your advocacy for Better for sure. Three Bs? Oh, absolutely. So way back in 1992, I was a first year teacher. I was on the job maybe three months. The kids had left for the day. I was at my desk, desperately trying to get ready for the next day, and a woman appears in the back door of my classroom. She pops her head in and says, do you care about your financial future? Kind of a jarring comment when you're like head down on like curriculum design. Yes, I am. She, she walks in and starts talking about a financial plan she has, how she helps the third grader next door, the sixth grader down the hall. She literally had all the paperwork wow. um, filled out. I had no idea what she was talking about. I felt really stupid because I didn't know what she was talking about, but I also didn't like someone coming into my room trying to send right. me on something. I had no idea. So politely listened. She left. I never did anything. But I began to self-educate myself about investing, and I kept hearing about mutual funds, low-cost mutual funds. I found The Motley Fool, your radio show, uh, pre-podcast era. And um, I had a friend who was a financial planner, and I said, I always hear about the 401k. What do teachers have? Obviously, we have pensions, but is there anything else? And that's the first time I ever heard the term 403b. He's like, yeah, most of them are awful. There are too many choices. Most of them are high fee. But what was amazing at my school district at the time, I had 60 choices. That's outrageous, right? 60 choices of different plans? Different different financial providers. Think wow. about that. Um, at the time, Los Angeles Unified School District had 225. I mean, it's bonkers, right? That's crazy. So luckily, though, of those 60 choices, the very last one listed was Vanguard. So. I had read about Vanguard. I had read one of John Bogle's books. I knew that. I actually listened to a John Bogle uh, interview, I think, on Motley Fool Radio. And so I signed up for Vanguard. I was feeling kind of smug. And I would sit in the staff lounge, and I'd hear my colleagues talk about their 403B guy or their 403B girl. And they often use the term TSA, tax sheltered annuity. They often don't even say 403B. So it makes teachers think they have to do an annuity product, tax sheltered annuity. And I started asking questions. How happy are you with your plan? Do you know what your fees are? And I remember one uh, one colleague said, oh, there are no fees. And I said, yeah. there are absolutely fees. Yeah. And she asked if she could bring in her um, statement and wanted me to take a look. And I'd never done anything like that before. And so I said, yeah, bring it in. Let me let's see if I can find the fees. Absolutely found the fees. She was very thankful. The fees were high. And she's the one that said, you should do like workshops, let teachers know about this. They, um, none of us know about this. So finally, in the year 2000, I launched 403bwise.com, got connected with an L.A. advocate, and got set up with an interview with a reporter from U.S. News & World Report. And the website got mentioned like three months after the launch, and we were kind of off and running from there. Oh, I'll point out that since then you've gotten a PhD. I have, and that you have taught the world famous class from Beer to Eternity. Yes, so yes, so I um, I taught public school. I taught uh, elementary, middle, and high school for about twelve years, and then I did get my PhD in two thousand ten from the University of New Mexico. And I also taught full time at the University of New Mexico, and then I became the associate dean of the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Redlands, and I think. Um, this class got me the job. Um, I have been infatuated with the brewery movement. I think it's phenomenal. I lived in England as a kid, and we had a pub across the street. And while I didn't personally go to the pub, of course not. What I noticed was it was families. It was not just like twenty-year-olds going to get drunk. It was whole families. It was this place to have good beer, good conversation. So when the brewery movement started kind of taking off, and it's really it's it's national. I thought it was fascinating. I wanted to know more about the history. So the first class I helped develop was From Beer to Eternity that we hold at the breweries in Redlands, California. That's so funny. Yeah. So, Scott, you've traveled a slightly different path. You are a certified financial planner practitioner. You're the principal and owner of Meridian Wealth Management. How did you get to be someone who takes on the 403B industrial complex? <laughs> well, ironically, it's kind of a similar path. Uh, so my wife is a public school teacher. She started in... I think it was 1998, 1999. And just like Dan, some guy walks into her classroom, 
Uh, luckily, it was after school. We've been hearing stories lately of, of uh, reps that just come right in in the middle of a class, which is bizarre. Uh, and said, "Hey, this." So she's a new teacher, like, and so they said the school district sent me, and I'm here to represent the retirement system. She's in the California State Teachers Retirement System, and I, I'm here to tell you about your retirement. And I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time, and so she calls me up and says, "Hey." Um, you know the guys here from the retirement system to explain our benefits, and I didn't know anything about the Calster system. I didn't even know what kind of retirement plan she had. I thought she had a four hundred one k. Right. So I'm like, oh hey, well let's schedule a time. And so I came down to the school. We're in her classroom. Like five minutes in, I'm listening to this guy, and I'm like, who who sent you? Like, who do you work for? I realized that it was just a sales guy. Right. He was it's not, selling... When you think of retirement system, you think it's someone from the, the county or the school district, yeah. but it's not. It, it was, it was an, an insurance salesperson. It was an insurance salesperson. He was selling, at the time, a very novel product. Now it's getting a lot of traction called an indexed annuity, equity indexed annuity. And so as soon as I realized what was going on, I'm like, oh, okay. And I, I <laughs> like, listen, we're not interested. Please leave. And I called the school district because like, I thought, thought this guy should get in trouble. And they're just like, oh, yeah, that's just, just a, they, they wander the, the campus. It's just normal. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not, this is not normal. This should not be normal. I mean, do you allow just any random people to come up to the fool and sell their products? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. I mean, evidently, it's a cool. I mean, school districts do it, so maybe you should reconsider your policy. <laughs> should, yeah. I mean, it's, it's working out we're, so well for the teachers. We're missing out on things I like indexed so. annuities. Yeah, yeah, you could be you could be getting into an indexed annuity today. <laughs> In fact, that's why we're here. That's that's why we're here. We're really a front to sell equity indexed annuities. We All we, right. we got to finance this nonprofit. So that's right. <laughs> okay, so those are your stories. Uh, let's get into why so many, and not all, but so many 43B plans are lousy. You've touched them on them a little bit. Partially, it's the choices and the fees, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very unlike the 401k, where the plan has probably gone out uh, for a request for proposal, competitively bid, one vendor wins, so you get better cost, um, better education. It's not like that in the 403b world. 403bs are structurally problematic because they fall outside of ERISA the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. So they're like a black hole, and it's almost like anything goes. You know, I talked about my old school district has 60 vendors. It's almost still just as bad. Where I live in Redland, you have 44 vendors. Mm. If you uh, teach in the public school system in Redland, but if you work at the University of Redland, where I used to work, it's an ERISA plan. Because it's higher ed, you have one plan. You have TIA CREF. So it's a structural problem. And it's actually, it's also, people don't understand the plan. So the fact that you're doing something like this, this is going to help get the word out. I think so many people are just not even aware of the 403B. And part of the is the fees, am I right, in that uh, it comes from an insurance company. Exactly. A lot of them are annuities. I tried to get some information on the average costs in 403Bs. I saw lots of conflicting information, but I saw some that said, on hold, the, the annual costs are somewhere between one and a half, two percent, or even higher compared to four hundred one ks, which are less than a half percent. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty with with getting the information is there's no central place that you can get it. It's so dispersed, and we won't get into the reasons why. But the fees actually can be significantly higher than that. Um, mm. Mutual funds do make up maybe I don't know what do you think, Dan, twenty twenty five percent. Uh, of sales, and generally those are the lower cost ones. But the rest is variable annuities, and then these these fixed and indexed annuities that we referred to. And technically, indexed annuities don't have an explicit fee. It's a spread product, meaning all of the all of the uh, the profit and the costs are built into the rate that they pay. So, insurance company makes a certain rate of return on their on your money, and then they pay you out a smaller portion of it. And so you you don't know what that is, so to really put a price tag on on what the actual average cost is is next to impossible. And with the index annuities, right, you can see why the sales pitch is so oh, attractive yeah. because the index basically what they tell you is that the performance is linked to an index like the S and P five hundred, but you're guaranteed not to lose money. So you can just say you're going to get stock market like returns with no risk. 
What could possibly be bad about that? And who wouldn't want that? Right. I mean, like I would take that any day of the week, but uh, it's it's all a fallacy, and none of it's true. Um, you don't have. You know, your returns are nowhere close. In fact, that's actually what got me so interested in doing this and working with teachers was not long after we kicked that guy out, a another salesperson had been working with a colleague of my wife's, and she asked me to review her product, the policy. And I couldn't believe what I found. She was told she was going to get 12% returns. And after reviewing this policy, it was clear she's never going to return more than 2% a year. Not only that, she had a 20-year surrender period and an 18% surrender charge. Wow. Which means basically, like, you can't take money out without paying a significant. That's what a surrender charge is. Yeah, you pay you're locked into fee. this product. Right. Um, and the insurance company controls all of the mechanisms for return. So even if uh, the stock market does go up a lot, they have a mechanism to ensure that you actually don't get much of it. Right. So, for example, it often doesn't factor in the dividends of the of the index, and there's a cap on it. So, I'm, I'm just making this up, but it might be capped at 8 or 10%, even if the index goes 20 or 30%. At many times, it's capped at 2 Oh, my three. gosh. Four, there might be a participation rate spread. We could do a whole show on index. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty bad, and the worst ones are sold to our nation's school teachers. Yeah. These are not products that could be sold in 401k plans. So, how is this possible? I mean, there obviously there's some sort of. Uh, my first reaction: there must be some sort of conflict of interest. And we had mentioned something on the show a few weeks ago that had been highlighted. Uh, I think Tony Isola's, Isola's website about in Texas how there used to be at least these ridiculous caps, like no more than a 6% upfront uh, load and a 2.75% fee, which are ridiculous high to begin with. And then they passed the law where they got rid of those. And then you see that the person who passed the law, that congressperson, has taken a good bit of money from the financial services industry. Is that part of this? 100%. And you know, it's, it, the problems are all over the place. They're especially at the state level. In California, 1971 legislation written by the insurance industry banned school districts from putting their plans out to bid. It's illegal to wow. put a K-12 plan out to bid. And that's why you have 40, 50 vendors on a list. Uh, Pennsylvania just passed a law requiring school districts to have at least four vendors. How is that efficient for a school district to have to aggregate money to four vendors? Obviously, it's worse worse in California. We're doing it to 44 vendors, but it's just it's corrupt up and down. One of the reasons, like some people might say, well, it's, of course it's better to have more vendors because it's more choice. But I can tell you, as someone who's on the 401k committee here at the Fool, when we we improved our plan, we put it out for bid. We chose the best plan because we legally had to. Like our 401k committee has a fiduciary responsibility to our employees to choose the best plan. Are there not fiduciary responsibilities within the 403b market? In general, the answer is no. So, in and we'll limit this to public K-12. There is no fiduciary responsibility in in any state that I'm aware of. Now, they have another plan that's available to them to teachers and public school employees called a 457. And in general, those do have fiduciary responsibilities. A lot of the times, it's ignored. But on the 403B side, there's no fiduciary responsibility. And because of that, there's no responsibility to take it out to bid. There's no responsibility to get the best uh, investment options. You have, right now, higher education institutions being sued for offering Fidelity, TIAA, and Vanguard. Wow. They're getting sued for and that. Those, by the way, those are the, the good guys in the industry. Yeah, they're, right? they're like, I mean, most of these, most of the people at these institutions have access to index funds at like f- less than five basis points, and they're getting sued for millions over it. Meanwhile, we have uh, school employees who are paying two, three uh, percent. It makes no sense. There's no economy of scale um, because since you can't put your plan out to bid, you can't aggregate your assets. Um, and go out and, and try to attract a record keeper that's going to offer a, a reasonable price on it. So it's it's structurally messed up. The incentives are all based on the commissions that are built into the products. If you sell high-cost commission-based products, you're more likely to attract agents who are going to go in and spend their time at these. Sometimes these agents, and I don't really envy them, some of them are signing up teachers at 50 bucks a month. And like it's great that the teachers are starting to save, but they're starting to save in these terrible products. Today we have in a normal 401k, you have auto enroll, auto escalation, yep. you have a fiduciary responsibility. 
those three things right there would fundamentally change the 403B market. Yeah, we've talked about that. But when you look at the research from Vanguard or Fidelity, or they talk, the difference in participation rates between auto enrollment plans and plans that don't and that don't have the auto escalation. I mean, it's a huge, it would be great, it would solve the retirement crisis if everyone had to sign up for a plan. But so you're saying in 403B, basically in that world, generally doesn't happen. I will say, though, locally, Montgomery County Public Schools, where I taught, were when when we met, that's where I was working. They put their plan out to bid, and they have one vendor. They have Fidelity. Well, the East Coast is generally better. You generally see less vendor choices than you do in states like California and Texas. That's where they're probably most problematic. So let's say someone's listening to this. They're a teacher, or they're they work for a nonprofit. They have a 403b, and they might be a little concerned now. So, <laughs> what should they do to figure out whether they have a good one, or what should they do to make sure if they have lots of choices to pick a good one? I would say a couple things. California runs the, the state retirement system runs a database called 403b Compare, and it, it's a place where every vendor that sells 403b product in California has to register, and you can actually find fees through that. So you can go ahead and take a look at that. Um, I would say. Just if you don't have Fidelity, help me out here, Scott. Who, if I forget someone, Aspire, Fidelity, Vanguard, TIA, USAA. I would say ICMA um, is now in the 403b market. I think they're doing it right. Yeah. And then T Rowe Price, I would say. And if you don't have those companies, I think then you need to reach out to 403bwise.org. Come to our website. Contact us. We have a very active Facebook group. We'll respond. We'll, we get a lot of folks that post their vendor lists, and then we'll go ahead and take a look at it. You know, Scott's a CFP, so we can help them. You offer on your website an advocacy toolkit. We do. So that you basically, and we've talked about this on the show too, like if you don't have a good plan at your workplace, get your colleagues on board to advocate for a better plan, and your toolkit provides actually a PowerPoint presentation to help people exactly. make that argument. Um, generally, does that work? Well, it's new. You know, the website, the the .org, we just launched the end of July, and so it's sort of one sort of arrow in the quiver. And mm-hmm. we are very curious to see how this works. We are looking to get to get a, a network of advocates across the country. We've talked about getting them together next summer, having like you know some workshops. This we're not going to change this by ourselves. Okay, the K twelve four hundred three B is broken. We need this is going to be grass level, grassroots level, organic. We need teachers out there to be the advocates in their school district. Come to our website, download our PowerPoint. It's adaptable. We're going to start doing weekly webinars for an hour. We're calling it Office Hours with Scott and Dan. First ten to sign up that that week, we will answer their questions, and we're going to do this regularly because we have a feeling there'll be demand for that. We are just, um, the more we can build a network, an army, this is how we're going to make a difference, because we cannot do it ourselves. Uh, another resource I'll point out that's on your site that I find very helpful, you have a good questionnaire for advisors, because a lot of people do want to hire a financial advisor, financial planner, and you have a good questionnaire there for just the questions you should be asking, starting with, are you a fiduciary or not, which is pretty important. Yeah, most, so a lot of people call themselves advisors in this market. But they're not advisors. Um, you know, not under not under federal law. They're not investment advisors. You can pretty much call yourself anything these days. Yeah, it's, it's not very well regulated. Yeah. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to do two things. One, we're trying to attract qualified, competent advisors, people who are CFPs, who are willing to act as fiduciaries, who are fee only, you know, who will always put the best interest of their their client ahead of their own. And we want to train them on, you know, how to work with teachers. So that that's one of our initiatives, because we have a lot of teachers who we always say you can do this on your own. We will help you. You can do this on your own. Here's some resources. Come to our website. But I mean, teachers have a tough job, and they don't really want to. Not all of them want to spend their evenings learning how to do retirement right. planning, learning how to do investment planning, and trying to dissect a prospectus not really something they want to do. So they can hire one of these advisors and know that their best interests are going to be put first and that they're going to say, okay, you've got AXA and VALIC and LSW, but 
you need to go with Vanguard and we're going to help you get you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, these advisors might work on an hourly basis. They might work on a subscription basis, which is a whole new way of yeah. doing business. Kind of neat. Uh, we The gentleman we're working with tonight is, is probably going to be working with the XY Planning Network. It's a really new and, and neat network of growing uh, fiduciaries. Uh, so yeah, that's that's one route. But we don't, you know, we don't exist to like push leads to advisors. Um, but we want all teachers, if they want access to advisors, to know that they should be working with a fiduciary. What questions to ask, and you know, we'll we'll do our best to connect them with with those people as well. One thing we often say to people with bad four hundred one ks is take advantage of the match and then go to an IRA. This. I think is also a challenge with 403Bs, right? Because the matches are not as com- uh, as common or, or as generous. This is another situation where I tried to find research and I couldn't find a condens- consensus. But it, generally speaking, there's not as much of a match. Yeah, it's very rare to see a match in a public K-12 403B plan, and that's probably because of these teachers have pensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. So is it's just. If you have a bad 403b, is it is one strategy just to ignore it and max out your Roth IRA first? Exactly. I mean, it's a couple things. One is um, lobby your employer. Use resources from our website, the advocacy tool. We have a fee comparison chart, and it's hard to argue with that. This really comes down to math. High fees over time are very punishing effect. They have a punishing effect on your balance. Just um, to make it that clear, you have a, a a good chart on your website that shows. Exactly. I mean, it really could result in cutting your like thirty to fifty percent off of your retirement savings just by by paying an extra one to two percent a year. Hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. it costs. Every time I do a presentation now, I have uh, teachers in the in the audience go to a online four hundred three b calculator and just play with the assumptions, and then, you know it really it's impactful for them. You're absolutely right. Roth IRA. The beauty of that is you pick any vendor you want. And then Scott talked about it earlier. The 457 is often available for teachers. More fiduciary oversight is required. Generally, you have less vendors. Notice I'm saying generally. Generally better uh, investment options. Generally better fee structure. That's kind of an odd duck plan. Most people don't have it, though though we get questions about it. So I'm not an expert about it, but as I understand it, you can actually contribute to both a 403B and a 457. Yeah, it's ironic that like the lowest paid profession yeah. like has access to the highest contribution limits. I don't think that's by accident. <laughs> you know? It's not like the Wall Street people get access to two retirement plans. Right. But yeah, if you can contribute 19,000 to a 403B and 19,000 to a 457. Um, as well as you know, make Roth contributions. So it is kind of ironic that you have that. And then if you're over age 50, another six thousand dollars to each. So I mean, that's fifty potentially fifty thousand dollars in many states. That's higher than the average teacher right. salary. Yeah, we know a teacher that he and his wife—they're both teachers. They max out both plans. I mean, they are putting away almost a wow. hundred thousand dollars. His name is the Millionaire Educator. That's what he goes by, Ed Mills. He had a paycheck. And he lives in a tent, and he. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you know what's interesting is he's someone who's job hopped to get better 403b options. Oh, really? Because that's when you can move money to a Vanguard, to a Fidelity, when you separate from service. So he will work at a school district. Mostly, this is in Georgia, I believe, is where he's at. Yeah, this isn't really a strategy we. Yeah, no, he's <laughs> like, if you don't like your 403b yeah, change exactly. jobs, that's probably not. Well, there's outliers. <laughs> Then there's Ed. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? It is right. way out there. But it just shows you what's possible. And he, he says he and his wife live off of 457 money from previous employers. Right, because you don't pay the 10% early exactly. distribution That's right. penalty yeah. for the 457. Yeah. yeah. And the 457 is a very big plan. Um, firefighters, police, all municipal employees have access to a 457. Um, generally, there is a fiduciary responsibility there, so you get a little bit better plan. Um, it doesn't always translate to school teachers. Sometimes they still have really bad 457s. But for the school districts that are paying attention, so like Los Angeles Unified School District, they've done a great job. Their 403B plan is not great. Their 457 plan is fantastic. Oh, okay. It's That's really good. good. There's a fiduciary responsibility there. It's not subject to this any willing vendor law. So, like Dan said, generally the 457 can be a you know really good alternative. You mentioned pensions earlier, and this, I don't know, might be more of a question for Scott as a CFP, but uh, many people think, well, I, I have a pension, I don't need to save in my 403b. But the, the truth is, many pensions are underfunded, some significantly so. So when someone says, oh, I've got a pension, uh, 
do you tell them, you may not be on such solid ground as you think, or do you think most of these underfunded plans, somehow it'll all work out, either due to the taxpayers or something? I think Dan should answer that. Uh, (laughs) Everything will be fine. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, I think it really depends on the location and the plan. I mean, you know, CalSTRS is underfunded, but it has a really good plan to get back to full funding. I think all of my clients, I think they're going to get made whole. Um, Most teachers are not retiring at 62 with 30, 35 years of service. A lot are. But many teachers are job changers, so they may have they might have come to the profession in their 40s. So when they're looking to retire in their 60s, they might only have 20 years in. So it's certainly not going to be enough. Um, most don't have uh, some have some retiree health care, um, but they're not prepared for the costs that come with Medicare. You know, Medicare is available, but it, it's not free. Right. You, know, you got your Part B premiums, you got your Part D premiums. Depending on your income, you might be subject to the IRMAA. And then you have, if you're not on a Vantage plan, you, you have your Medigap policy. And multiply that by two if you're married. It's shocking, I think, for, especially for people who retire from a company that had a really solid health plan. Yeah. People are like, oh my gosh, this is really expensive. It could easily be $1,000 a month. Yeah. It can easily be $1,000 a month at 65. They're not prepared for this. So. The idea that just because you have a pension or you have Social Security, you don't need this 403B, that might be true for a certain portion of the population, but it's not true for most. And, and when it comes to that, we also think that we should we should try to have some diversity in the taxation, the, the tax structure of their 403B or 457. You mentioned the, the Roth IRA. A lot of teachers, they might have their home paid off by the time they retire. All of their pension income is taxable. If they have Social Security, there's 13 states that don't, but if they have Social Security, 85% of that's probably going to be taxable. And then they've got this pre-tax 403B or 457. Every dollar that comes out of that, it's going to be taxed potentially when rates go back, uh, income tax brackets go up in 2026, 25%, 28% plus state. Suddenly, easily a third of every dollar they take out of that 403B is going away to taxes. Um, it's nice to have some of that money be able to come out on an after-tax basis through like a Roth. Right. So we're we're not just encouraging people to save in a 403B, but also to have some tax diversification. Right. And most, most you, you have the option of doing the traditional 403B or the Roth 403B. Yeah, it's something yeah. in the 401k space, it's like 80% of companies offer the Roth option. It's not that high in 403B yet, oh, okay. but it is growing and growing quick. I, I actually think we're seeing more Roth being added in 403B than we're seeing good vendors being added. So, you know, <laughs> something. So, your website has been up and running for almost 20 years, but yeah. you switched recently from 403bwise.com to 403bwise.org because now you're a nonprofit. Huh? Yeah. You're a 501 something or other. C3. We actually, have a, we actually have a 403B. There you go. <laughs> we have 42 vendors that come to my yeah. office, to, come to my house. And he has an to... open door policy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whoever wants to show up at his door can sell Any him stuff. willing vendor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, in 2016, the New York Times ran what we would call a groundbreaking series on the 403B. It, it exposed the problems of the 403B to a really wide audience. And lucky for us, a gentleman named Tim Ranzetta, um, who lives in the Silicon Valley, read the articles and found, about, found out about the problems. He runs something called Next Gen Personal Finance fabulous free personal finance curriculum available to all K-12 teachers in the country. Hmm. And it's not only just great uh, personal finance curriculum, it's also great professional development support. They run uh, four to five days a week. They have professional development sessions around the country. They often pay teachers to attend their webinars to learn how to use their curriculum. So anyway, this gentleman is such a champion of personal finance when he found out the teachers were being taken advantage of, he, sh- he shot me an email and said, you know, I read about what's going on. I would love to talk to you. I run this personal finance initiative. And at the time, I was moving from New Mexico, leaving my job at the University of New Mexico, coming to Redlands to work at the University of Redlands. So we kind of exchanged emails. I really wasn't, you know, we get a lot of inquiries. So I get set up in Redlands, and we do a Skype uh, call, and he said, look, I'm really concerned about this. Is there anything I can do to help you? And again, I didn't really know his background. I really didn't know what he was offering. And I said, you know, we're pretty good here. Uh, we actually had Fidelity as a sponsor. You know, we used to have sponsors, always the low-cost companies only. 
And he said, great, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Just stay in touch. Um, Scott, I don't know if you want to pick it up from there, because you stayed on, in touch with him on some other issues. Yeah, he's a data guy. He wants to he wants to get the data, go through the data, and use that data to kind of push the movement forward, right? And, and I'm a data guy, too. I, I just love trying to figure things out. And I know how to get the data. It's just like a massive project. So we were kind of scheming together to try to figure out, okay, how can we get the data that we need to do the stuff that we want to do? And the more that we uh, tried to f- figure out how to do that, it was just like, this is a huge project. Um, and it, 403Ys isn't actually about data at this point, but that was kind of how we got the ball rolling. Like, you know, somebody should be doing this full time. So we had a few more conversations, and I just remember Tim saying to me, you know, do you know anybody who would want to do this full time? Like, who who would you suggest? And I'm like, uh, I think I might know somebody. I think I might know somebody. And, you know, he'd already met Dan, but it was like a year before. So uh, he invited us up to Palo Alto to his um, headquarters, and we were there for, I don't know, 45 minutes. And he just said, hey, you should do this full time. I'm like, oh yeah, we'd love to do it full time. He's like, no, I'm gonna. I'm saying you should do this full time. I'm gonna fund you, and uh, yes, yeah, so it was like kind of jaw dropping moment yeah. for for us. So, so now you guys full time are tilting at the 403B windmill. I like the analogy there. <laughs> well played, Robert. <laughs> well, so it's about time to wrap things up. So I want to thank you guys for stopping by, but I really want to thank you for what you're doing. In the financial services world, there are so few good guys. Like you guys are the good guys, and I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that you actually have John Bogle's seal of approval. Yeah, true. Because he sort of endorsed your books. You are going yeah. to visit. You go to visit Vanguard to do financial literacy because that was your PhD on. And then you look at your itinerary, and so you've been summoned to yeah. John Bogle. Absolutely, it was a phenomenal experience. I thought it might be just a shake of a hand on your way. It was like, no, come into my office, sit on the couch, and I'm like, oh my god, I spent 15 to 20 minutes um, talking to him about this, and the guy was so so sharp, uh, so passionate, um, so um, I don't know, just. Just a conservative, real person, you know. Yeah. I can see why so many people love him, and it was it was crushing. You know, I knew he was older, but we found out he passed away for for two days. If you went to four hundred three B Ys, we had a uh, pop up of a picture of him, you know, with his birth year and year of passing. Yeah, he's great. I, I cherish the two cards he wrote me. Yeah, and the picture I have with him. He was always very thoughtful that way. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, around here, being called foolish is a high compliment, and you guys are as foolish as can be. So I salute you, and I thank you guys for stopping by. Thanks for your kind words. Can you tell our wives these things? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the show. It's edited self-dealingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.